Hello and welcome to this extra inning of The Ballpark, a podcast from the Phelan U.S. Center here at the London School of Economics. I'm Chris Gilson, Managing Editor of the Phelan U.S. Center's blog on U.S. politics and policy, USAP. For this extra inning of The Ballpark, my colleague Mohid Malik and I spoke to Susan Shirk, Research Professor and Chair of the 21st Century China Center at UC San Diego. She's the author of the new book, Overreach, How China Derailed Its Peaceful Rise. As part of the U.S. Center's U.S.-China seminar series, Professor Shirk joined us on January 23, 2023, to discuss how China's leadership in recent decades has influenced the country's relationship with the United States and the steps that both could take to improve that relationship. Thanks so much for joining us today. My first question is, how has President Biden's approach to China been different than President Trump's? And to what extent is the relationship between the U.S. and China dependent upon individual leadership? Well, uh, their expectations were that President Biden's approach to China would be very different from President Trump's. President Trump took a much more confrontational approach to Beijing than previous presidents because uh, both Republican and Democratic presidents ever since the time of Richard Nixon had pursued an effort to engage with China, to establish a stable relationship with China, despite China's very rapid rise in economic and military power and the fact that its political system was so different from that of Western democracies. The real change was under President Trump, but Surprisingly, President Biden's administration really hasn't reversed or modified much of the Trump approach. And a lot of that is due to the fact that China's own behavior has provoked a bipartisan consensus in the United States that China is a threat and a more threatening rising power than a responsible rising power. And so in this bipartisan consensus, you get a lot of domestic political pressure on the Biden administration, which President Biden, of course, the Democrats had a very small margin uh, up until the midterm, had a very strong majority in the Senate and the House. And Biden believed and was very focused on big domestic initiatives of self-strengthening for the United States. So he used China, competition with China, as a kind of foil to strengthen this bipartisan consensus to support these large legislative programs. This approach was a pretty successful domestic political approach, but the price was continued deterioration in relations with China. What we see now is a concern, I would say, and increasing signs of debate in the United States 
about whether or not the United States has overreacted to China's own overreach. In a recent article, The Dangerous Downward Spiral of U.S.-China Relations, you write of a U-turn in Chinese politics during the time of Xi Jinping towards a more personalistic dictatorship. In what ways has this way of governance contributed to the deterioration of relations between the U.S. and China? I think one of the surprising findings of the research I did for my book, Overreach, is that China's overreach, meaning a change in its foreign policy and domestic policy to be more aggressive internationally, more repressive domestically, in a manner that actually turned out to be counterproductive and costly for China itself, began before Xi Jinping. So, yes, there was a U-turn in Chinese politics in 2012 when Xi Jinping took over toward a more concentrated form of leadership. But what was interesting to me and will be interesting to readers is that this overreach begins in a period of collective leadership under Hu Jintao between 2002 and 2012. But the dynamic driving overreach under collective leadership is very different than the dynamic under the personalistic dictatorial leadership of Xi Jinping. And so the foreign policy, domestic policy, overdoing things in a way that's costly to to China is much more extreme under the personalistic dictatorial system of Xi Jinping than it was under collective leadership. So I spend a lot of time in the book describing how this dynamic operates with a focus not so much on Xi Jinping's own personality or political character or even his own ambitions, but the way the system works. Under a personalistic dictatorship, especially one like Xi's, where he has carried out a massive anti-corruption campaign, which is also a purge of potential rivals. And he's been doing this since 2013, and it continues right up to the present day. And it's become what Zbigniew Brzezinski, in talking about the Soviet Union, described as a permanent purge. And so we have something like that now in China, where all the other Chinese officials at every level, especially subordinates, are afraid of being targeted in this anti-corruption campaign purge. And therefore, they go all out to try to show their loyalty to Xi Jinping, which leads to jumping on the bandwagon behind his policies and overdoing their implementation of his policies in a kind of overcompliance 
and also keeping any information from him about the costs of his policies. So the information feedback loop is not working at all. So these uh, perverse features of a personalistic dictatorship, especially one which has used a purge to consolidate power over subordinates and kind of terrorized all these subordinates, the result of that is an overreach dynamic. Oftentimes, the implementation of foreign and domestic policy is even more extreme than what Xi Jinping himself may have wanted because of the dynamic of this type of system. So I would say that, yes, personalistic, concentrated leadership of the sort that we see over the past decade, and we now expect to see for at least another five years, has very much contributed to the deterioration of relations between China and the United States and other countries as well. In your new book, Overreach, How China Derailed Its Peaceful Rise, you examine the different ways China has overreached in areas such as its foreign policy and its economy. How has China's overreach contributed to the souring of its relations with the US? Could China's overreach be seen as a response to perceived American overreach? Well, let me take the last part of that question first. When we look at the sequencing, the timing of various events, I don't think it's possible to attribute China's overreach to a response to American overreach. Uh, American policy has been quite consistent in its effort to engage with China while it maintained its own economic and military strength, including in the Asia Pacific region. So it really doesn't make sense to see this market shift in Chinese policy, which occurred around 2006, 7, 8, as being a response to American policy, because American policy under Obama, even with the so-called pivot, which involves strengthening America's role in the Asia Pacific, was remained an engagement policy. It really was not an aggressive move on the part of the United States. So I said to say, attribute most of China's overreach to its domestic dynamics, but none of it was inevitable. It's not just the result of China's growing strength. It really is the result of the different forms of domestic politics and the competition among politicians inside China. So when I say none of it's inevitable, there's a lot of human agency. What that means is that the future is not inevitable either. So I think that it's conceivable that with 
smart diplomatic efforts on the part of China and the United States, the two sides might be able to prevent a a completely hostile form of competition and stabilize their relations in the future. So I have some hopes that some of the diplomatic initiatives we've seen recently, uh, after six years under Trump and first two years of Biden, with very little diplomatic effort on the part of either country, But now I think relations have become so dangerously bad that both sides have some motivation to stabilize relations by engaging in some diplomatic communication and negotiation. Many experts, including yourself, have noted how for decades the interdependence between China and the United States has acted as a means for peace and global stability. Is there a possibility that this interdependence has been used to target one another? Yes, sadly, that has become the case. And I make this argument in the book. China and the United States are, you might say, weaponizing their economic and technological interdependence in order to weaken and, well, to compete with one another in a way that has become dangerously hostile. So this is what makes the Cold War between China and the United States so very different from the Cold War between the Soviet Union and the United States, where the economic interdependence was much less well-developed. But in the case of China, they are woven together in terms of their trade relationships, cross-investment between the two countries, and research collaboration and innovation. And of course, socially as well. There are many people who have had one foot in each country, in China and the United States, entrepreneurs, researchers, journalists, people of middle-class people of who went back and forth between China and the United States. They might have had their business in China, but their wives and their children were based in the United States where their children went to school. That was not an uncommon pattern at all. But now the weaponizing of interdependence actually makes this Cold War more dangerous than the earlier one with the Soviet Union. And we see the United States, as well as China, sanctioning one another, erecting new barriers between the two sides, trying to pressure the other side by embargoes, say, of American technology on Chinese firms, beginning with Huawei and ZTE, and now expanding to not just semiconductors, but many other types of firms. And the United States has also imposed visa restrictions, limiting 
the ability of Chinese students and scholars from coming to study and do research at America's world-class universities. Cross-investment has also been restricted and has really dropped from very high levels of foreign investment by China in the United States. The bottom has really, we've really gone down very low in that investment. And it's had an impact on the investment of other countries in the United States too, because companies from Europe and Japan and other countries, they don't want to get caught in this very hostile crossfire of regulations restricting the interdependence between China and the United States. What are some of the steps that both the U.S. and China need to do to improve their relationship? Well, the book is really a book about how Chinese domestic politics impacts its foreign and domestic policy. And But in the last chapter, I do offer advice to Beijing as well as to Washington about how they might stabilize their relationship. And unlike many other analysts of U.S.-China relations in the United States, I haven't completely given up on the possibility that smart diplomacy between the two sides might enable them to restore some stability and some levels of cooperation with one another, including cooperation on global threats like climate and public health. And my advice to China is to undertake some pragmatic changes in their own policies. And that would mean restoring dialogue with Taiwan, because of course the scenario that is most likely to lead to a direct military confrontation between the United States and China is uh, something in the Taiwan Strait. So for a long time, China, uh, under Hu Jintao, as well as Jiang Zemin, there was dialogue to try to peacefully prevent independence by Taiwan. That's certainly the way Beijing would view it, as well as to prevent the need to fight a war in the Taiwan Strait. And that dialogue completely dried up under Xi Jinping once there was a president from the Democratic Progressive Party in Taiwan. Xi Jinping just shut off all dialogue with Taiwan. So that's one important thing that Xi Jinping could do. Also, I advocate completely closing down the thought reform camps in Xinjiang, as well as some initiatives to try to stabilize relations with the other claimants in the South China Sea. And on the U.S. side, I suggest that we need to test whether or not 
it might still be possible to induce some moderation in Chinese policy using good old-fashioned diplomacy. And I see a ray of hope that the Biden administration might be undertaking uh, that kind of effort. So, and when it comes to sanctions, economic tariffs, technology sanctions, I advocate using them as part of a diplomatic strategy, not just imposing them from the very beginning against Chinese firms and China as a whole, because use sanctions in that way uh, has created a view inside China uh, that the United States is just determined to slow China down, slow down its development, and that the U.S. is completely hostile to China, no matter what China actually does, what its behavior is. So what I advocate is the use of pressure tactics like sanctions as part of a diplomatic strategy. Uh, you begin by threatening sanctions and making clear that if China changes its behavior, then those sanctions won't be necessary. So that part, I don't see any signs of the United States moving in that direction yet, but I hope that we might start to have a more sensible debate in the United States about the trade-offs in our policies toward China. Uh, because right now, our approach is, I think, overreaction, and it's actually harming our own competitiveness, as well as risking a dangerously hostile relationship with China. Throughout the answers you've provided, you've placed emphasis on the importance of diplomacy and of individual agency. But to what extent do structural considerations feature in your argument? Quite a few commentators, particularly those of the realist school of thought, write about the apparent Thucydides trap and see a clash between the United States and China as inevitable. Do you find such statements to be overstated? And do you think that actually individual leadership, whether in China or the United States, can make the difference in avoiding conflict? Yes, I very much offer my analysis as an alternative to the international relations structural view. And I've enjoyed all my opportunities to debate Graham Allison on this, including in his class at the Kennedy School. So I, I don't think that China's rise in power inevitably leads to a military clash with the current incumbent power, namely the United States. So, and I think that's because as an old China hand, I've observed and participated in US-China relations for many decades when China was growing very rapidly, becoming more powerful, and of course, its communist political system was, has always been very different from that of American democracy. And yet, 
what we saw was a Chinese policy of restraint and reassurance uh, in which it, uh, through its own efforts to engage economically, integrate its economies with its neighbors and as well as with other countries, its flexibility, its pragmatism in its own policies was very reassuring. It was really a very sophisticated approach because they understood that there would be a tendency of the United States and China's neighbors to view it as a threat as it became more powerful. So simply saying, no, we're not a threat, using a lot of empty words wouldn't persuade anybody. What they had to do is act like a responsible power, joining international organizations, engaging in give and take, you know, um, and they did that. They did that very successfully. And the United States took a pretty generous policy toward China of welcoming China's seat at the table and um, giving it greater status and respect if it pursued its ambitions in a responsible manner. So, you know, I believe that there's, it's inevitable that Chinese leaders will be ambitious for China. And that's inevitable and completely legitimate. What's not legitimate is the coercive bullying approach that China has recently taken to its foreign policy toward its neighbors as well as toward other countries. But if it could restrain itself as it once did, then I don't think there's any reason that China can't rise peacefully. But of course, if it does change, if it does moderate its policies in the future, then uh, the United States, UK, Europe, then we have the responsibility to actually pay attention to that, notice that, and reciprocate with our own positive efforts. You've also mentioned that China's aggressive posturing and its overreach has hurt China in many ways. Assuming Xi Jinping does not want to be ostracized on the global stage and does not want China to be weakened, where do you believe he derives the assurances that he does that a perception of China as a rogue state will not negatively impact the domestic and international standing of his country? Why does Xi Jinping feel that he is able to act aggressively on the international stage and oppressively domestically if such policies are actually hurting China? Because in the Chinese political system, once you concentrate the amount of power that he has, it's very difficult for other members of the Chinese elite to restrain him, to debate him. My own view is that many members of the Chinese elite, for example, don't really support Xi's close relationship with Putin or his tacit support of Russian invasion of Ukraine. And yet, it's very difficult for them to resist it because if they uh, resist it, 
than if they disagree, if they speak out in support of Ukraine, then this will be seen as a form of disloyalty to Xi Jinping and will be risky for their own political survival. But on the other hand, this gap in perspectives, and I think you had many such gaps, not just about Russia, but about wolf warrior diplomacy, this very aggressive rhetoric by Chinese diplomats. I think you have it in relation to domestic policy against the private sector, the crackdown on the private sector. And of course, the persistence in the carrying out of zero COVID for three years. So, you know, there are, I believe there are many people in China who don't agree with Xi Jinping's policies, but in the system that they live in, it is very difficult for them to challenge Xi Jinping's policies. But, and yet, I don't think this is necessarily a stable situation, especially at the elite level. You know, I think the complete absence of power sharing at the top will be very difficult for Xi to sustain. And so the way I sometimes put it is, I can't predict what will happen, but when it happens, I won't be surprised. Susan Shirk is research professor and chair of the 21st Century China Center at UC San Diego. She's the author of Overreach, How China Derailed Its Peaceful Rise. And that's it for this extra inning of The Ballpark. Thanks so much to Professor Susan Shirk for joining us in this episode. This extra inning was produced by Chris Gilson, Mohit Malik, and Anderson Tan. Our theme tune is by Ranger and the Rearrangers, a Seattle-based gypsy jazz band. You can look them up at rangerswings.com. To listen to all our previous episodes, just enter LSE Ballpark into your search engine of choice. You'll find us. We're free to listen to, and unlike lots of other podcasts, we're ad-free. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. Email us any feedback at uscenter at lsc.ac.uk, or you can send us a tweet at lse underscore us. And please, tell your friends about us. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the Failing U.S. Center or of the London School of Economics. Thanks so much for listening.